As we continue focusing on the doctrine and the ministry of prayer, I want to invite you to open your Bible to the Old Testament to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, as we consider another prayer, which is the prayer of Hannah or Hannah's song. And so from 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in the first verse, let's read together. 1 Samuel 2, starting at verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the, children, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Would you pray with me? God, our heart's greatest desire is for your glory, for your kingdom to come on earth in our life as it is in heaven. Would you teach us to pray? giving us understanding of who you are, and in so doing, inspire us to trust you, to trust in your goodness and grace to the point of greater fervency and faithfulness and prayer. Lord, let us be known as a house of prayer, as a people of prayer. May that be our reputation. We ask you through Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you to think about your experience with God 
If you look back over your past and reflect on a former difficult time, perhaps a season of frustration and difficulty in which you experienced, and as you were going through that season, that difficulty, perhaps at that time it caused you to question how God could be good, how there could be any good in what you were going through. And today, having been able to look back, you can now see that God was good, that God was with you and that he was working for your good as you went through that experience. Can anyone give testimony that you've been through something like that? You can look back at a painful, difficult time of your life and now say, God, you were with me and God, you were good and you've worked this for my good. The text that we read, 1 Samuel 2, is Hannah's prayer. It's exactly what Hannah is doing. She is looking back, seeing through a rearview mirror, reflecting on God, on who God is and what God has done. If you're familiar with Hannah's past, with her experience, you'll remember in chapter 1, it describes all of it. She's going through a difficult season, a, a certain test in her life, some, some trouble. And if you have your Bible, I'll just kind of walk through this very quickly. This is the background to her prayer. First, she's experiencing a, a predicament. Verse 2 says that Hannah had no children. Verse 5, the Lord had closed her womb. And her husband's other wife, Peninnah, Peninnah had many children. And so a man with two wives, one with many children, the other Hannah with no children, it's not too difficult to imagine that things were not ideal between these two young women. Verse 6 says that Peninnah was Hannah's rival. And the Bible says that Peninnah provoked Hannah severely making her life miserable. Verse 7 further explains that this provocation continued year after year after year. Peninnah was relentless. Peninnah never let up. She never ceased. And so Hannah's experience was frequent and severe, and she became so disturbed to the point that she was no longer able to eat. Grief took over. Her life, the Bible says, were, was characterized by weeping. That was her predicament, but not only do we see her predicament, but we see Hannah's prayer. In verse 10, it says, in the bitterness of her soul, she prayed. You can feel the intensity of her praying. It says she grieved to the Lord and wept as she prayed in anguish. Verse 16 says she is praying with grief. In fact, she is filled with such emotion that a priest who is there sitting by one of the columns of the tabernacle, a priest named Eli, when he watched her pray, the Bible says her lips were moving, she was moving, but there was no word. And so the 
the old priest watching her go through this, all of the emotion and anguish and the moving of her lips concludes, do you remember that she is drunk? He concludes that she's intoxicated and so he confronts her. If you look at the content of Hannah's prayer, as she communes with God, she begins to bargain with God. Have any of you ever bargained with God? She bargains, God, if you will do this, then God, I vow that I will do that. Have you ever been there? God, if you'll do this, then God, I'll do that. If you know much about personal grief and you understand there are stages involved in grief, whenever we undergo some type of severe loss, and it doesn't just have to have to be the loss of death, but a loss of a dream, a loss of a physical health, some kind of a loss that is devastating, it's not uncommon for us to grieve. There are stages of grief. There might be denial. I can't believe this has happened to me. This can't be real. There's anger sometimes, lashing out, asking, why did this happen? Why me? Perhaps some depression, feelings of despair and hopelessness, losing all thoughts of hope and improvement for the future. And before God begins to give birth to feelings and thoughts of healing and acceptance, bargaining with God is a normal part of grief. It's common. God, I promise if only you, if you will do this, then God, I'll change. I promise, God, that I'll do what you want me to do. God, I promise that I'll live the way that you want me to live. If only you will do this, God. In Hannah's, Hannah's predicament and pain, she prays, she pours out her soul unto the Lord and bargains. God, if you'll give me a son, if you'll give me a baby boy, if you'll intervene and stop the pain. In verse 11, it says, she vows, I'll consecrate this little boy's life to you, all of it, his entire life, and no razor shall ever touch his hair, which, is a, which was a vow of consecration. Hannah bargains with God, give me a son, and I'll surrender him back to you. And then we see God's provision. Look, if you have your Bible, read with me in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, her predicament followed by prayer, then God's provision. Verse 19, then they rose early in the morning, her husband, Elkanah, and her, they traveled to Shiloh and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. God remembered. God remembered her predicament. God heard her prayer and provided Hannah with a son, and she named him Samuel. And finally, we remember and see Hannah's persuasion in verses 24 through 28, read those also with me. 
And so she has this child. She raises him. Remember, she's vowed him to the Lord. Lord, if you'll give me a son, then I'll surrender his life to you all of his days. Now look at verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her. Where? To the tabernacle, to Shiloh. And she took along with her three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered a bull. They made sacrifice. They offered this bull unto the Lord and brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, Eli, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. She's saying, Eli, do you remember? Therefore, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. Hannah is faithful to her commitment. God, if you'll give me this male child, this son, then I will yield him, surrender him to your service his entire life. And so being faithful to her commitment the Bible says after he, this lad, is several years old, after he had been weaned and so several years old, she leaves him. They travel annually to the tabernacle at Shiloh to worship. And this mother leaves this little boy, Samuel, with Eli the priest. No small sacrifice. In fact, in verse 11 of our text, in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Now Cana went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. You know what that means? It means they left the little boy behind. And so this, she writes this prayer as she leaves. That's the background to the text. That's the background to Hannah's prayer. Hannah, a woman of faith, an example of one who demonstrates her faith in God through prayer. In chapter 1, her prayers are marked with desperation. Peninnah's provocation and pain that she had caused her rival, Hannah, are used by God to draw Hannah closer to himself. And here in chapter 2, her prayers no longer are marked by desperation, but they are prayers of exaltation. She learns to embrace God's plan for her life, which is not often easy to do. Hannah did not have access to one of our favorite verses in the Bible. She didn't have access to one of the truths that you and I know about God. Romans 8, 28, for we know the people of God. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. What she did have was an absolute confidence in God's providence. Do you remember providence? Do you remember what that means? Can I remind, we, we spent some time on this. God's providence. Providence means to see. To see. God in his providence sees. What does he see? He sees ahead of us and he sees to us. 
God in his providence sees ahead of us and he sees to us. Hannah is now seeing some things in her rear view mirror as she sees in her desperation God's providence. God was with her, working on her behalf. I need to hear that every day of my life. I need to be reminded Every day that God is with me, that God loves me, and God is working all things together for my good. How about you? He's with us. He loves us. He cares for us. And he is always working in our lives for his glory, for our good, for the good of our family, for the good of our church family, for the good of New Albany, for the good of the nations through us. And one of the ways that we demonstrate our faith in God and his goodness is through prayer. With your Bible remaining open, I want to walk through the text that we read and just share with you three divisions to Hannah's prayer. The first division is in the first two verses where Hannah considers what God has done. She considers what God has done. Second, in verses 3 through 8, she considers what God is doing, generally how God is at work in the world. And then third, in verses 9 and 10, I want you to consider with me what Hannah prays regarding what God will do. So first, in the first couple of verses, from Hannah's perspective, having left her son Samuel with Eli the prophet in Shiloh and returning home without him, This is what God has done. She's writing this prayer from her own personal experience. And if if you'll notice with me in verse 1, notice what the Bible says. There are three mys listed in verse 1. My, my, my. Maybe that's where we get that phrase. My, my, my. Three mys of Hannah. First, she says, my heart, what? In verse one, she says, my, she's just left her son. My heart rejoices, it exalts in the Lord. It's not just an expression of emotion or feelings. You remember the heart refers to the center of our being. The heart includes the mind, the intellect, the will, the actions, and even our affections. She's saying at the core of who I am, it's all about God. That's the core of who I am. I want you to pause and think for a moment what has just occurred in her life. She has just weaned her little boy, little Samuel, perhaps maybe four or five years old, maybe six. And what did she just go through? She has just left her son behind. Can you imagine the scene? This young mother traveling with this awareness that once we get to Shiloh, once we go to the tabernacle, once we offer our worship to the Lord, then I'm going to hand my son, I'm going to hand him off to remain in the tabernacle with Eli. Can you imagine the scene? She, when it's time to leave, perhaps tears begin to stream down her cheeks, and she takes the little boy, and she says, Eli, I've packed some things, and Elkanah hands over a a satchel full of garments. These are his clothes. This is his favorite coat. I made it for him. 
And Eli, when he's sick and he's not feeling well, you can tell because this is the way he acts. And many times when he's upset, Eli, this is what I sing to him. I hold him and care for him. And these are his favorite things to eat. And these are some of the things when it storms at night, he gets very uneasy and is afraid. And she begins to just tell Eli all these things. And Elkanah, her husband, steps in and begins to pull her away as she hands off her son to leave him. Can any mom imagine that? I remember the, when our oldest daughter left home and we drove to Nashville, Tennessee and left her there at school and we drove away and I could tell you I cried for hours. She was 18 years old and we left her. Uh, every time Mindy and I leave our grandson in Louisville, it just kills us as we pull away this young mom is giving away this little boy, traveling on foot, 15, 20 miles away, remembering her commitment to the Lord. Therefore, in verse 1, she says, my rejoicing in the Lord, it's not circumstantial, is it? She certainly wasn't happy, but there was a joy. There was a joy knowing God that exceeds the gains and the losses of life. Philippians 4.4, 4, do you remember? Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. And I'll say it again, Paul says, in a prison cell, writing to the Philippians, and again I say rejoice. Hannah is talking with God about her loss and is saying, my faith is in God, God is the center, God is the core of my life. And then she says, my horn is exalted. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the Bible, the word horn is a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of power. If you're in the wild and see a great elk or a great bull moose and you see their horns, their antlers, those are visible symbols of strength and power. They're magnificent. And so here Hannah is, a troubled mess, a young mom emotionally falling apart, having left her son with tears flowing down her face. She is praying in communion with God and says, God, I rejoice in you. My joy is in you, and you are my horn. You are my strength. She further says, I smile at my enemies. Why? Because I rejoice in your salvation. Who are her enemies? Who are, who are, I'm going to think about who, are, who were the enemies of Hannah? Well, it's not just Peninnah because she says enemies, plural. So who is she referring to? I'm sure her and Hannah were not besties. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 11, when she prays, she prays earlier to the Lord of hosts. And the word hosts in the Bible, referring to God, is always a reference to the armies of the Lord the host of the Lord, the angels of heaven. So the, the, the Lord of hosts is over everyone, over all peoples, over all things, over Israel, over all other nations. I believe that she says, I smile at my enemies for I rejoice in my salvation. I believe she's saying, God, I smile because I know that you rule, you reign over all peoples, over all nations. My salvation and life is in you. You're, you're the security, the strength of my life. In verse 2, she's making a declaration of faith. Read it with me. 
No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. We sing songs about the rock. We go to the rock. There's no other God like you. Lord, there's none like you. All kinds of songs. Would you, would you keep your place here in 1 Samuel 2? Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40? God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. God is it referring to himself. And I want you to listen to what God says about himself as he speaks through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 18 begins with a question. To whom then will you liken me, liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? God is saying, who is like me? What is like me? Verse 19 and 20, the workman molds an image, a craftsman molds an image, makes an idol. And the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. That's if you're wealthy and you make an idol. But what if you're poor and you have no gold and you have no symbol? Look at verse 20. Whoever is impoverished or poor for such a contribution, instead of an idol of silver or gold, does what? Chooses a tree that will not rot. Or in other words, if you're poor, you make an idol of wood. And then seeks for himself a skillful workman, a craftsman, to prepare a carved image, an idol that will not, what does your Bible say? Totter. Why wouldn't that be bad? I don't want to have an idol of my God that will fall down. If the wind blows, if something happens, then my idol falls over. No, no. You want to make an idol of wood, if you're poor, that will stand strong. Verse 20, God speaking, have you not known, have you not heard, has it not been told you from the beginning, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. It is God who is above all things. Look at the next phrase, and we, its inhabitants, are like grasshoppers. God is the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. God brings the princes to nothing. Who are the princes? The rulers of the earth. He brings them to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless, presidents, dictators. Trump is nothing before God. Biden is nothing before God. As evil as he is, Vladimir Putin is nothing before God. Who the, the fellow in China, Jing Jing or Xi Jinping, nothing before God. Scarcely shall these men be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when God will blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? To whom shall be my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. God. 
who brings out their host by number, the stars, the planets. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. That's what Hannah is praying in her prayer. God, there's none like you. No one compares. In her experience, through emotion, through tears, she knows God. She knows that God is real, that God is present, that God is the true God who is with her. And she declares, in my distress, in my emotion, I still rejoice in you. You are my life. All of my strength comes in you. I smile at anyone who threatens me or your people. There is none like our God. That is her prayer. And then she provides further commentary in verses 3 through 8. Consider what God is doing, how God is at work in the world. If you want someone to have a worldview where God is at the center, the foundation over it all, beneath it all, sustaining it all, these are your verses. Look at verse 3. It's a bridge verse between verse 2 and verse 4. She understands that God's knowledge is perfect. He knows everything. She says, including the actions of all men. God knows them. Look at verse 3. Look at what she says. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. If you go back to Isaiah 40, that includes you and me, all of our actions. They're all weighed by God. He knows every thought, every action, every deed. Even now, as you sit where you are, God knows your every thought. Even now, he knows every motive. God knows every action, all of it. Remember Paul in Romans chapter 2, it says, God will even judge the secret hearts of men by Christ Jesus. He knows it all. I was kind of pondering on this this week, and I started thinking about our culture. Our culture more and more denies this truth. Do you? Even some of you might be tempted to discount or deny this truth about God. That God knows all of our thoughts, that God knows all of our actions, and one day, what does it say? They will all be weighed. They'll all be judged. Hebrews 9, 27, is appointed unto man wants to die, but at death, that's not the end, is it? What does he say follows death? And then comes God's judgment. The wane. Hannah begins this section with a warning. He is God, he has all knowledge, he knows everything, and then summarizes the rest of this section in verse 9. Jump down there, read that verse with me. Look at the latter part of verse 9. For by strength no man shall prevail. No man, no woman can stand against God. No one can prevail before our God and who he is. And so then in verses 4 through 8, it's the heart of what God is doing. This is kind of a biblical worldview for the Christian. Hannah explains it and confesses that God controls everything and turns things according to the power of his righteous will. Would you walk through these with me? I'm going to go through them very quickly. I probably won't be able to do them justice in the time we have, but look at verse 4. Read that verse. The bows 
of the mighty men are broken, and those who have stumbled are girded with strength. The mighty have broken, those who are weak are girded with strength. I was thinking about an example of that in the Bible. You remember the armies of Israel are faced off with the armies of the Philistine. In the Valley of Elah, described in 1 Samuel 17, they're in battle formation. Both armies are facing one another, and from all appearances, the army of Israel, God's people, have not a chance. There is a military warrior on the Philistine side, a mighty man, the Bible says, an imposing man of power and strength, nine feet tall. And he stood defying God. You remember what God did to this mighty man, to this powerful army of the Philistines? God intervened, and what did he do? He raised up a little guy, a little guy who was a harpist. The Bible says he was a shepherd boy, very ruddy looking, just a youth. And he went into King Saul, and he said, Saul, let not your heart be afraid. I will go forth and fight against this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the the Lord God of Israel, Saul said, oh, David, you don't have a chance. You don't have a prayer. I, he was determined to go. And so you remember he tried to put battle armor on him and David just cast it all off. And he said, I'm going to stick with what I know best. And he took a sling and five smooth stones and went out to the battle, this Philistine. And the king thought as he went out the door, he's dead meat. There's no talking him out of it. His heart, his mind is set. Do you remember what happened? Exactly as Hannah prayed. The weak, the feeble slayed the mighty. And the Philistines ran for their lives. Look at verse 5. It says, those who were once wealthy, who were full, what? The tables have changed. They've now hired themselves out as beggars. And those who were once hungry, what? Are now fed. What does that mean? It means that God shifts things around as he determines. The barren one has borne seven. Seven is a picture of perfection. Did Hannah later have seven children? We don't know. Would she? I don't know. But what's the point? She's saying God replaces emptiness with fullness. God provides security. Our security does not rest in our prosperity. It doesn't rest in numbers, it lies in God. He's the rock, there's no rock like our God. Then look at verse six. It says God is in the one who controls life and death. Read that verse. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. God controls that. Our culture is becoming more and more obsessed with wellness. Do you think? More about wellness, and, and I, I guess it's okay. You'll either see televisions on commercial about food or somebody working out and exercising or some pill that you can take and you'll lose all your weight. It's all about wellness. I guess that's okay. Mindy and I have made a few changes recently. You know, some of you, some of you younger won't even know what I'm talking about when I mention statins. Started some statins, trying not to eat any fat, no corn, fructose, no salt, no processed food and exercising, and it's a joy. <laughs> Wellness. Certainly we're, we're to be good stewards of the temple, right? 
and do our best. But listen, to a large degree, we try and hide from death, from its certainty. There's no denying it. And ignore God is the one who gives life, who controls life, and even raises the dead. And by the way, those who say the Old Testament has no reference to afterlife, eternal life, reads Hannah's prayer. She's pretty certain about life to come. You see that? She says even God is the one who raises the dead. She seems to be sure of something to come. Psalm 16 is my favorite psalm. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. And my flesh, my flesh now rests in hope. Why? For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. God controls life, controls death. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says he makes the, makes the poor just as he makes the rich. He makes the poor and he makes the rich. Think about that. He brings low and he lifts up. You know what Hannah is praying? She's saying, God, poverty and prosperity are controlled by you. Obscurity and popularity are in your hands. God, you determine it all. Read with me verse 8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world upon them. He determines it all, makes poor, makes rich, obscurity and popularity. Do you ever think about your money? I know you do. The lack thereof, some of you have more month than money. Some of you are in a blessing where you have a lot more money than month. When you think about your money, ultimately it's not about the federal government and what the government does. Your money and your prosperity is really not about the Fed and what they do with the rates, nor the rates and the rate of inflation. Your money is really not about the stock market. It's not about the predictive indexes of bull markets and bear markets, and it's not about consumer confidence and spending. All of those things have their effect. Your money is really not about political economic theories. What's it about? It's about God who controls and sovereignly oversees it all. Paul came to understand this thing about God, for he says, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. I've learned to be hungry. I've been through that, and I've experienced plenty. But what does he say? He concludes, but in all conditions, whatever state that I'm in, I've learned to be content in God. Why did he say that? Because he understood that God controlled it all. And so Hannah, Hannah summarizes this worldview and says God upholds and sustains the world he created and even in her emotional despair, she submits to herself to God's control. Let me close from verse 9 and 10. Consider what God will do. Ultimately, when all of his plans are fulfilled, Hannah knows from God's law, that there'll be a time of separation. It's coming, it's on the horizon. She says, when the wicked, when the adversaries of God will be cut off and the faithful will be welcome. And God will judge the ends of the earth. And I believe that reference in verse 10 is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the last part of verse 10. 
referring this time of judgment when the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be blessed. Verse 10b, and he, God, will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one. I believe it's a reference that anointed one is to the Messiah. Do you know this God? Do you have this kind of confidence, this kind of trust, this kind of security in your life because, because of God, because of his providence that he sees you, that he loves you and God cares for you. He's aware of what's going to transpire tomorrow. He sees it all and he's faithful to care for us. Whatever season you go through, whatever experience that you find yourself in, God is with you. God is faithful. And a mother in her distress could even pray such a prayer and rest in God and who he is. You control life. You control my future. You control death. You control my finances. You control my health. You're over my family. You're over my church family. God, I rest and trust in you. If you don't know him, if you've heard about him, I want to tell you this morning how you can come to know him. The reason you and I can know God is because he took initiative for us to know him. And in our sinfulness and our hopelessness and despair, when we had no hope for future life, God took initiative because of his grace and his mercy and sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to live a sinless life, a perfect life, and then to die on a cross for our sins. That all of the punishment and the wrath of God that we deserved was poured out on the person of Christ on the cross. And he defeated sin. And he defeated death and the fear of death through the resurrection. You and I can know God today by placing our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God is speaking to you this morning and if you never have bowed your knee and you've never confessed him, then this morning as the Holy Spirit of God might be speaking to you, you can come. And you can say, God, I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to trust you. I need you. As Don and musicians come, let's pray together. Father, these moments, these minutes of response are certainly sacred. God, would you speak and would you move through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Make us a prayerful people people who are known by prayer, a people who trust in you and rest in you. Even when, God, we don't understand why you call us and how you work in our lives, that God would still trust you, rest in you. Give us strength and faith to that end, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. If you're here. And you'd like for me or someone to pray with you, you come. Or if you just want to come and kneel before the Lord and say, God, I need to trust you. 
I need not to be anxious or fearful or afraid. You come this morning during these moments of invitation.